Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading this morning will be Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have to fear the one, fear of the one, I'm sorry, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities, our ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come today with this important passage of Romans 13 and a critical juncture between culture and scripture. And we pray that you give us insight into how we can live this out and apply this uh, in a way that reflects the beauty of your grace, is relevant to the world in which we live, and sets our minds and hearts on a kingdom yet to come. So help us, please. We need a word from you, especially in this respect, in this text today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. American culture is in the middle of a sweeping moral and societal revolution. There have been other seasons, moments in history when this has been the case, even within our own country, but the last 10 years have featured a pace of change that has been stunning and like no other season in American history. I remember waking up the morning after the election in 2012 with a very different feeling in my soul. A number of states had passed referendums regarding same-sex marriage and its approval. A number of other states had rejected constitutional amendments regarding traditional marriage, and a number of states had also approved legislation, or the legalization, rather, of marijuana. It was these ballot initiatives that gave me, at that moment, a clear sense, a pulse, that our culture was changing, and it was changing very quickly, and I felt like an exile. And don't get me wrong, I probably have been in exile for a long time, but in the morning of 2012, after the election, I felt it. The challenge, though, church, is not just a political one. There are deep cultural issues on multiple fronts. Let me give you a few examples. Sometime in the next two weeks, the Supreme Court will rule on whether or not same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. The topic of transgender is now front and center due to Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner's identification as a woman. 
A few months ago, we observed a firestorm located in our state and the subsequent economic pressure that came in regards to opposition to religious liberties and the whole issue related to RIFRA. I'm having lots of conversations these days with Christian business owners, executives, board members, Christian educational institutions are all trying to navigate the landscape that's in front of us from a legal, moral, and a public relations standpoint in regard to the issues of religious liberty. But the issues in our culture are not just about sexuality, marriage, and gender. There are other significant challenges. Church, there are racial issues within our country that are still not even close to being healed. This morning in South Carolina, as Eric prayed, we have brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME Church who are mourning after the senseless killing of nine African-American brothers and sisters by a white young man motivated by racism. It's shocking, it's awful. There's a moniker that's become very popular, Black Lives Matter, and they do. And it's an expression of the pain and sorrow that many African Americans feel when they hear about yet another black male who's been killed. We've seen protests all over the country in the last year, violent clashes with police in cities like Ferguson and Baltimore. And when you dig down underneath it, you'll find that with each flare up, there are deep-seated levels of frustration and mistrust that exists between certain aspects of our communities and people in government and even law enforcement. Something's happening in our culture. I remember Troy Riggs, the director of public safety here for our city, telling me that it used to be, when he started his career, that a police officer would appear on scene and people would stop and respond to an officer's instructions. A few years ago, he noticed that when a police officer arrived, that no longer happened. Instead, people would run away regardless of what the officer said. And what he told me was, Mark, now when an officer arrives, they're not stopping or running away, they're running toward us in order to attack. Something's happening in our culture. And in the midst of all of this, is the question of the role of government. Is government the solution? Is government the problem? Or something else? And for that matter, how should Christians relate to government, relate to culture, in the midst of all of the imperfections, the brokenness, the pain? What do we do when the government or your employer becomes an adversary? And how do we think about ideas like authority in the middle of all of this? So over the last few months, our elders have been very actively discussing a number of these issues. In particular, we've been focusing on the issue related to same-sex marriage. Next week, we're gonna have our Fresh Encounter service. We're moving it from this week to next because of Father's Day. And after that prayer time, I'm gonna give you an update on the product of some of that discussion help you understand kind of where we're going, what themes we're leaning into, and in particular, wanna talk to you about how you should maybe think, um, biblical um, instructions relating to whether or not you should attend a same-sex marriage. And for many of you, that's a personal question. I wanna help you understand a little bit about that. And as well, in the future, not just talking about the same-sex marriage issue, but also we need to talk about the racial issue, and we're gonna figure out some ways to be able to do that. I think it's providential that today we're in Romans 13. 
And what I want to do is try and help you understand what this text teaches about how a Christian should view government and really anyone or anything that's in a position of authority. This text is helpful in that it gives some additional application to the framework of a Christian mind that we've been working on since Romans chapter 12 and verses one and two. So in play here is this, how do you think about authorities in your life? How do you interact with them? How do you work with them? The principle that we find beginning in verse one is this. It's very simple. And the command is be subject to governing authorities. And what I'm gonna do is walk you through this principle, then the reasons for it that Paul gives us, and then implications. So the principle, the reasons, and the applications, or the implications. So we're called to be subject to the governing authorities. In fact, Paul says in verse one, let every person, as sweeping as his instruction was in chapter 12 and verse three about everyone not thinking of himself or herself more highly than we ought to think, so now here we have a sweeping instruction regarding how we are to respond to governing authorities. This is another application of what it means to be a living sacrifice and to discern God's will in chapter 12, verses one and two. And what Paul is addressing here is how should a Christian relate to the government, specifically to authority figures in one's life, and he's arguing here, I think, that Christ-like character has public square implications. In other words, what we talk about here affects how you respond to your boss tomorrow. Kids, how you hear what the Bible says about this relates to how you respond to your parents. It relates adults to how we think about our civic responsibilities and how we think about the government and the Supreme Court and every aspect of civic society. Paul gives these sweeping instructions because he wants believers to express their commitment to God, not just inside the church, but he wants them to express their commitment to God in how they relate to rulers and how they relate to laws within government. Now why would Paul raise this issue? Why? He just talked about what it's like to be inside the church and immediately he goes outside of the church. There's a couple reasons why I think he's talking about this. First, in commanding believers in chapter 12 to not be conformed to the world, Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He's setting us up for a collision course. If you're not gonna be conformed to the world, there are gonna be moments when Christianity and culture are going to collide. After all, he's writing to the church at Rome. Government was a part of that city. Rome was the capital of the world's superpower. Secondly, Christians are called to affirm the lordship of Christ. In other words, we have a king and his name is Jesus. And in Roman government, there was an intermingling of government and religion. The emperor was considered to be Lord. And so for Christians to say Jesus is Lord was not just a spiritual statement, it had potential political and persecution ramifications. Third, there was some kind of disturbance in Rome. According to Acts chapter 18 and verse 12, we find that the Jews had been kicked out of, of Rome, and historians suggest that there was some sort of rebellion or insurrection, and as a result, all the Jews, including Christian Jews, were banished from the capital city. When the book of Romans was being written, it's likely that that edict had been reversed, and Jews were starting to come back into the city. 
And so rebellion and questions about it must have been in the forefront of many people's minds. And finally, the Roman government was brutal and godless and the church seems to have been wondering about what do we do with paying taxes to a brutal and godless government since so we're supporting this entity that is filled with so much oppression? So for all of these reasons, and I'm sure others, Paul picks up this subject, and what does he call believers to do? He calls them to be submissive. He calls them to subject themselves to the governing authorities. That word subject or to be submissive means to place oneself under, it means to be submissive to the orders of others. It means to willingly follow another's instructions or to obey them. And you need to know that this idea of submissiveness is a theme that is all throughout the New Testament. For instance, believers are called to submit themselves to God in James chapter four. We're committed and called to submit to one another in the body of Christ out of reverence for Christ according to Ephesians five. Church leaders are to be submitted to because they have to give an account before God for their actions. Wives are called to submit to husbands in Ephesians 5. Slaves are, committed, are commanded to be submissive to their masters regardless of whether they're gentle or whether they're unjust in 1 Peter 2. And finally, Christians are called to be subject to every human institution in 1 Peter 2, verse 17. So you need to know that the idea of submission is not a new concept. It's not just in Romans 13. The overall posture of a follower of Jesus is that we should be joyfully and willfully submissive to those who are in authority over us. In other words, Christ-likeness is expressed very clearly in the context of how we relate to one another in our homes, in the marketplace, in the public square, in your neighborhood. The normative pattern, according to what Paul says, and the rest of the New Testament, the normative pattern for the believer is to be one of honor, of obedience, and respect. Now immediately, some of you in the back of your minds are thinking, whoa, 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 wait, wait. what about evil rulers and sinful governments? Are we to always obey? Is there not a place for civil obedience? And of course there are. There are legitimate reasons where one would side with the apostles when they said we must obey God rather than man. Or example of Daniel or the midwives in Exodus 1 or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Paul knows that there's times when there is a collision course that's set and when believers will not obey the government. In fact, even in Romans 8, he said, we are being killed all the day long. So he envisions that there are times when persecution has come. So Paul knows that there are exceptions. But what's interesting is he doesn't make any mention of those exceptions in Romans 13. He makes no qualifications. And I think he does so because he wants for a particular attitude to be demonstrated and facilitated in the hearts of those who are the followers of Jesus. So Romans 13, one to seven is not about civil disobedience. There are other texts that talk about that and you need to balance that out. But what this text is about is about the attitude. It's about your perspective as it relates to authority. So what Paul is addressing here is that he wants believers to have a Christ-like mindset, a Christ-like attitude when it comes to authority. So persecution may come, you may be treated unfairly, 
The government may not be on your side, but there's a warning here and a warning you need to listen to me regardless of how frustrated you are with the country, no matter how concerned you are with where it's headed, how unbelievably ticked off you are with your boss. You need to be mindful of the fact that Paul is warning us here about developing a chip on our shoulder as it relates to authority, becoming naturally adversarial, or becoming a rebel and wrapping it in Christian triumphalism. Paul knows what he's not saying here. He knows what he's not saying here. He's been beaten for not obeying. The goal of the book of Romans is not to overthrow Rome's power. His aim is to make known the power of God through salvation for everyone who believes. Paul's aim is not a political revolution. Do revolutions happen? Sure they do. Is political influence, especially Christian influence, bad in the political arena? By no means. But what Paul's point here is, and it's an important one, that the Christian's civic posture and our attitude as it relates to authority is one of normative submission. Because Jesus is our Lord, our citizenship is in heaven, and the gospel is our mission. And when those three things frame how you think about the world, it frees you to make godly appeals to authority when they're out of line, and it gives you courage to bear up under hardship knowing that this kingdom is not, my kingdom is not on this earth, my king is not in Washington or in Indianapolis, and my hope is not here, it is in the coming Christ who one day will settle all accounts and make everything right. So this passage, listen, this passage calls Christians to remember who you really are. It's a warning about not allowing the concerns related to culture to begin to creep in and create an attitude that will be caught by people in your home. Dads, on this Father's Day, I commend to you submissiveness as it relates to authority, lest your children pick up on a little, an ambient sort of mentality that pushes and criticizes and critiques all sorts of authority and end up affecting your children with a really bad view, not only of authority, but a bad view of God. Now, Paul calls us to be subject to authorities. That's the first point, that's the principle, and then he gives us two reasons, and he moves fairly quickly into this in verse one. Both concepts that we will see in a moment are rooted in God and who he is and what he has done. The first reason, why should Christians be subject to governing authorities? First, because authority is God's idea. Look at verse one, for there is no authority except from God. This means that every governing entity, be it the state, be it the family, be it the courts, be it law enforcement, every governing authority does not have authority on its own. All earthly authorities have derivative authority. Authority belongs to God, 
and all authority flows from him. So if you have a position of authority, whether it's you have some people who report to you in employment, whether you serve thankfully in our government, whether you are a dad trying to lead the context of your home, you need to know that you have that authority not because of you. You have that authority as a derivative of God's authority. So what it helps from the very beginning is to place that authority in context, all of our authority in context. What's more, this also helps us because connected to that authority is the concept of morality. Understand that courts and governments do not make something moral or immoral. God does. The courts and the government, and for that matter, your families, merely reflect a standard outside of ourselves. The government, for instance, could legalize and can legalize prostitution, but that doesn't make it moral. In the same way, our courts could legally define marriage as between two men and two women, but that doesn't mean that God views it as marriage or that it is marriage. We can call it marriage and the courts could call it marriage, but that definition of marriage actually doesn't belong to us. It actually belongs to God. So don't confuse making something legal with making something moral. Otherwise, you would fall into a mentality that might makes right. No, power, morality, and authority are all derivatives of God's power and God's morality and God's authority. This is important because first, it's helpful in that anyone who exercises power or exercises authority will have to keep in mind that while they have that power, they are not powerful in and of themselves. They're only powerful because they have been placed in a position of God-ordained authority. That authority is bigger and more important and more significant than any one person or any one government. Secondly, it's also helpful so that believers understand that by submitting to authorities, they're actually not just submitting to earthly authorities, but they're submitting to God's authority as mediated through those authorities on earth. So behind an authority figure, even bad ones, is the God-designed principle of authority. Now negatively, that means that people can abuse their authority, and this text actually holds them in check to realize, look, you can't abuse your authority because that authority doesn't belong to you. You can't use your authority for your own purposes. God has given you that authority for the advancement of the common good of, of people that God has created, for the general goodness and grace that God has embedded into the created order. It also means that people who are rebellious against authority figures have an attitude where you're constantly against authority figures that you don't have just an authority problem, friend, you have a God problem. On the reverse side of the fence, there's something beautiful when authority is used in a godly way. For instance, David said this in 2 Samuel 23, he writes this at the end of his life, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. And what does David say? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth as a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What's, he, what's his vision? His vision is of godly authority is a blessing to the people on earth. So when people use authority wisely, when we submit to it graciously, we contribute to something beautiful. 
When rulers rule with justice, when fathers lead with Christ-likeness, when wives submit with respect, when children obey with joy, when police officers enforce the law fairly, when judges rule with equity, and when citizens respond with respect, the culture benefits from the common grace of God's authority. God keeps, by this authority structure, anarchy in check. You may not like the speed limit on 96th Street, you may think it's too slow, but you ought to thank God that there's a speed limit and that there's people who remind you about its importance and will incentivize your obedience. That's a very positive way to say it, isn't it? I can imagine some police officer today is gonna to say, I am incentivizing your obedience. So. Authority, when used properly and when responded to correctly, is a beautiful gift from God. Children, it is a gift that you have parents who love you enough to tell you, sorry honey, you can't do that. It's a gift that you have employers who you report to. It's a gift that we have government. It's a gift, these things are God's gift to us. Secondly, it's not just theoretically beneficial, but secondly, authorities are appointed by God, not just in general, but very specifically. He says, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So lest you just apply this concept generally, Paul now gets very specific, meaning that no king or government is established apart from God's will and his permission. Daniel 2, 21 says he removes kings and he sets up kings. So every king, whether good or bad, is established by God's sovereign will. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who sacked Jerusalem, is called the servant of the Lord in Jeremiah 27, 6. And there were times in Israel's history when God set up a king as a means of judgment of God's people, 1 Kings 12, 15. Now granted, this doesn't answer all of the questions as to when we are to submit or not to submit. Do you submit to a bad king versus a good king? What's the appropriate recourse to deal with that? What Paul is doing here is identifying that as a general rule and as a guiding principle, as the posture of a Christian's life, believers are commanded to submit to people and institutions even if they are imperfect and even if they are evil. It's that important. 1 Peter 2.18, another helpful text. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And notice he says this, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, lest you somehow develop in your mind and heart, well, I can be respectful and I can have a good attitude as long as the person who is in the position of authority is worthy of my respect. But if they're not worthy of my respect, then the gloves come off or the mouth just is open. I can just say whatever I want. Now, Peter goes after that and says, no, 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 you gotta be submissive not just to the good ones, but also to the unjust ones. Why does he say that? He says that because I think Paul knows humanity, he knows us, and that is this, that we have a natural concern for being treated fairly. And at one level, fairness is absolutely right and appropriate. I'm not saying justice is, has no place in this discussion, but here's the problem. The problem is that our culture elevates our rights to a level that eclipses other and more biblical, even, values. 
The Bible is far more concerned about issues like pride and rebellion and anger than it is about the violation of our, of our rights. Again, I'm not saying that there's no place for dealing with injustice for yourself or for someone else. However, I think if we're honest, we know how quickly we run to the issue of fairness, how quickly we seek revenge, how angry we can get when things seem unfair. No one goes to hell because they're treated unfairly or had their rights violated. But we do go to hell if our hearts are filled with unbelieving, self-centered pride instead of trusting in Christ for our future and our hope. Don't forget, our mission is the gospel. That's what Peter is driving at. So the question is this, where is your heart, honestly, where is your heart as it relates to authority, authority figures, unfair treatment, or even injustice? Paul's writing to Christians in Rome about Rome. He knows how this could be taken by them, and he offers no contextualization, no exceptions. Why? He's driving, I think, at the attitude that God is ultimately the focus of our obedience. And while disobedience on earth to governing authorities may at times be necessary and right, what Paul is arguing for here is this, that the normative pattern for believers is Christ-like submission regardless of whether or not you think the ruler is worthy of it. That's the point. Now, two implications. So far, we've just covered verse one. Verses two to seven, there are two implications. They're framed by the words therefore. Therefore in verse two, and therefore in verse five. So there are two implications of this passage. The first one we find in verse two, and it says this. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So. The first implication is this, don't do what is wrong because of judgment. In other words, if you don't wanna get in trouble, news flashed, don't do what's wrong. That God has ordained authority figures as a means of his deliverance of the warning, if you do what's wrong, there's a connection between wrongdoing and punishment. It's exactly what the passage says. For rulers, verse three, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. In other words, that the government exists in order to, to enact judgment on those who do wrong, and in so doing, to thereby protect those who do good, which is really important. If you have a voice in policy, or if you're involved in law enforcement, or if you're involved in government, this text is saying that the government exists in order to preserve good. That's why government exists, in order as a common grace of God in the world. Verse four, for he is God's servant for your good. Notice that the government, Rome here, is God's servant for your good. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Notice that God could use Rome or any governmental agency or any authority in order to bring his judgment, the grace of his warning that bad behavior deserves punishment and that this governing entity is a part of God's grace and helping us to see that wrongdoers will be held accountable. So he says that governing authorities are God's servant and God's Avenger. 
So God uses the government and anyone in authority as a means to help us to be motivated to do what's right and to discipline us when we succumb to self-centered actions. So when we start to, I'll use a very low hanging fruit application, when we are, think this speed limit should be 45 instead of 30, and I don't care that it says 40, 30, I'm gonna drive 45 because I like to drive 45, and it's stupid, this law should be changed. So you go ahead and do that, and with your proud, arrogant heart, you're, when you get pulled over, are gonna get a ticket, and you deserve it, not just because you broke the law, but because of the attitude that said, I don't care about some rule, I'm gonna be my own rule maker, and that, friend, is not good for your soul. And in so doing, God has provided the structure to try and provide some boundaries. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you haven't received Christ, this is actually a very important point for you to listen to. Because you know that sort of sick in your stomach feeling when you've been busted? When, can you think of the time when you first got busted? I can think of the time when I first got busted. I mean, like busted, it felt like a really big deal. I was in eighth grade and I was at a basketball game and I'd taken the program that they handed out and I'd torn it up into a bunch of little pieces of paper. And with my friends, every time we scored a basket, I was throwing confetti up in the air. We were having a great time. And well, I didn't know that it was a capital crime at my school to do such things. And so um, <laughs> the next day at homeroom, after doing this, um, Mr. Bosch, eighth grade teacher, said, um, there were some students last night who uh, made a mess of the gym by throwing confetti in the air, and I knew, oh my word, you know the feeling when you're like totally busted and you know it? And as he began to say, those students, I need to see some of them, he had a list, he's going through the list, I knew my name was on the list, and as I'm waiting for my name to be called, it felt like the schoolroom floor was tipping, like I, I was getting nauseous and I'm like, I'm sliding into judgment, I mean, I, I, I'll never, I can see the room to this very moment, I remember this, and that sort of sick in your stomach feeling of you've been called to account. Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you've had that in a small way with a ticket, whether you've been called into your boss's office because you stepped out of line, or whether or not you stood before a judge as he was figuring out what kind of penalty you were gonna have for your felony. You need to know that sick in your stomach feeling is a warning of a feeling you can't imagine. When you stand before the God who owns all authority, and he doesn't just know one thing you've done, he knows everything you've done. And the beautiful call of the gospel is this, your only hope on that day is that God has taken Christ's righteousness and applied it to you. So to be a follower of Jesus means you got the message loud and clear, I'm the problem and my sin deserves judgment and I need a solution. And the Bible says that solution is Christ. And God puts government and governing authorities as a reminder that we need boundaries in our lives because at our core, we're anarchists. At our core, we're rebels. And without the structure of the common grace of God's good gift of government, there would be absolute anarchy as everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This text calls us to not do what is wrong. Here's the second thing the text calls us to. In verse five, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the second point is don't just do, don't just not do what's wrong. Here's the second thing, do what's right, because it's right. That's the point. So you can't just walk through life doing things and hoping you never get caught. But instead, the posture of the believer is be in subjection, not just to avoid God's wrath, I mean, that's one motivation, but also for the sake of conscience or doing what is right. So verse five tells us that believers and Christ-likeness is more than not just getting punished. 
Some of you are just trying to skirt through life, trying to skirt through your families, skirt through school, just trying not to get caught or busted. And the reality is, you may not have gotten caught or you may not be doing anything wrong, but there's a host of things that you're not doing that you should be doing because your motivation is I don't wanna get caught when it really should be, you know what, I just wanna do what's right. Believers are to be governed not just by an external law, but we're to be governed by an internal law. We're to do what's right because it's right. We're to be a model citizen in all respects. We're to be a law-abiding citizen, not to earn God's favor, but we're to be a law-abiding citizen because of God's favor and because of the flavor of Christ in us. And then he goes right to the issue of taxes. (laughs) Oh, boy. He just goes for it. Verse six, for the same reason you pay taxes. What do you mean same reason? Same reason, because of authority, because of conscience sake. For the same reason you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Don't miss that. What authorities? The tax authorities. So he just said there, the IRS is a minister of God. Go figure, right? How how different it is to think this way in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our world. And then he gives a sweeping list in verse seven, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you catch this? What What he's saying is that taxes and revenue and respect and honor are not just things that we give, they're actually things that are owed. And they're owed because of the divinely ordained authority that God has established. Meaning that believers are to think differently in the world in which they live. We're to talk differently. We're to act differently. We're to pay differently. We're to appeal differently. We're to disagree differently. We're to advocate differently that we live in the same world as everybody else and we deal with the same injustice issues and we deal with the same levels of unfairness and we see the same moral issues and we come after those things but we come after them with a very different mindset. We are unusual people because we belong to a heavenly kingdom and because we belong to a heavenly kingdom we model good citizenship in this one. We see authority as a gift from God And we do our part to contribute to a culture where people will then see our good works and glorify your heavenly Father. Just after first service, I had someone in tears saying, I just resigned my job this week because of a moral issue that I can't support anymore. And as we wrestled and talked about how this person worked through that, what was really clear is that this person saw the line that said, I can't work here anymore because of these issues, and then the way in which this person conducted themselves, that's what relates to Romans 13. So I can't answer all your questions as when do you draw a line and say, I can't follow this directive anymore, I can't follow this command, but what I can tell you is the attitude and the actions, or the the attitude and the perspective that you have on authority is really, really clear. That the world would look at us 
And they may dislike us because of our views, our morality, or the exclusivity of the gospel, but they ought not dislike us because we're grumpy, because we're rude, because we somehow have a chip on our shoulder, or somehow we're grasping a hold of things as if this world is our kingdom. It's not. So appeal and cry about injustice and appeal for right actions but do it in a way that demonstrates that my king is Jesus, and this world doesn't belong to me, and I'm waiting for my king to come. Let me finally give you some admonitions and exhortations. There's four of them that I just wanna press into your hearts as one of the pastors of this church in the midst of a culture that needs people who live out Romans 13. Here's the first thing. Church, I want to encourage you to keep developing a Christian mindset, meaning you have to have a mind that's informed by biblical values and biblical thoughts. So one of the reasons why we're gonna spend some time next Sunday evening is just to talk about some of these things. Our culture is not neutral. You know that. But here's the problem, is that your mind and your values can be easily shaped and captured by wrong and unbiblical thinking unless you bring your thoughts back to and take them captive by the word of God. You need to keep coming back to the scriptures. There's so many different segmented news vehicles and publications now that you could so limit what you listen to or watch or read that you begin to think that everybody, everyone agrees with you because everything you watch and read is all saying the same thing. And the problem is, is that your thinking and your values may be similar to the tribe that you're in, but it might not reflect this tribe, the tribe of the word. Secondly, let's be sure that we set our affections on the right things. The challenges of our present culture are already having a purifying effect on the church as we are pressed to really evaluate, what do I really love? What, what's my real hope in life? What's my real dream? What's my purpose? What's my identity? And these are really good things to press in. And the pressure of culture around us is creating a really great opportunity for us to think about what we really love. We were always exiles. We've always been sojourners. But we feel it and see it in a new way. Third, Christian mind, the right affections. Third, can I ask you, can I plead with you to be godly? We need people who will follow Jesus faithfully in every arena of their lives. This is no time to be playing around with sinful patterns that will give the world more reason to reject the gospel. We need people who will speak the truth of the word who will stand correctly for what the Bible says, but be godly, gracious men and women, who are model citizens, model employees, model neighbors, model spokesmen, so that when we are accused of wrongdoing or believing the wrong things, at least people could appeal to our long-term godliness. In other words, I don't agree with you on this, but I know that you really love me. 
I don't agree with this, but I know that you're really trying to be a good person. I don't like what you're saying about morality, but you've really lived out a Christian life. And finally, for those moments when you feel afraid, I wanna encourage you to don't, to not give in to fear, but instead choose to trust in Christ. I wanna encourage you to battle through fear that could lead you to worry, or fear that could lead you to sinful anger, or fear that could then lead you into actions that you will regret. And I wanna remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus, your king is seated at the right hand of God today. And one day he will return, and on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And our trust, our hope, our confidence is in him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you need to preach that truth to your heart when you are afraid or nervous or filled with worry. That Jesus is my Lord, my citizenship is in heaven, and the gospel, that's my life's mission. And that's how you live out Romans 13. By saying, God, I'm here, I am your child, and I want to be a model citizen in the midst of a world that's broken. I want to be a model employee, I want to be a model neighbor, so that the gospel of Christ could be seen regardless of the culture, the environment, or the context. Father, now help us we are a people who are prone to grab a hold of our rights and our loves in this world, and in so doing can jettison very more, more important realities that are so central to the gospel. So would you help us as a people to live out the power of Paul's vision in Romans 13? Well, we pray for those who are in positions of leadership today, be they in government or business or in homes, that you would use these men and women to be a part of your good grace and good government and good authority. Would you help them to be humble Help them to be moral, to make decisions that would fit with your heart and your mind. And then God, for the thousands of decisions that are represented even within this room of people trying to figure out when, when is too much, too much, and when, is, when have I crossed the line of needing to obey God rather than men, I pray you'd give us great wisdom that we might know how to live peaceably, but also to live righteously. And Father, help us as well to be the kind of people who not only are concerned about the moral issues related to sexuality, but also the moral issues related to race. Help us to love one another, care for one another. Help us to weep with those who weep. And we pray for peace in our land. And we pray for a new understanding of morality to come from the word of God. 
and begin that, we pray, inside the church and then propel it out into the community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.